Hello, welcome, and would you look at this mess. I'm your host, Kate, and the purpose of this podcast is to trace, explore, and celebrate the unconventionality that lives within all of us. Hey, welcome back for another episode, and as always, thank you for joining me. In my last episode, I mentioned a couple of times about being in archaeology and the importance of being in shape when working in this industry. And it got me kind of thinking about what it means to be in shape and how that interacts with our health and, uh, and how this sort of intersects with body shape and size and weight. So I decided that I wanted to explore this topic a little bit more. And in doing that, I actually read a book that is called Body Respect. And you have to pardon me for a second. I don't know the the name of the author offhand. Let me open it up here and see if I can find it for you in case you're also interested in reading this book. Um, so Linda Bacon and Lucy Aframore are the two authors who wrote this book called Body Respect. And Linda Bacon is the woman sort of behind the health at every size movement. And she also wrote a book previously, I think by that name. And then she realized some of the shortcomings in that book. And so she and Lucy came back and wrote the second book in order to sort of um, expand on some of the, the concepts and to clear up some of the things that she didn't get quite right in the first one. So I will say I have not read the first book. I've read just the second book, but it was... Um, a really good read. And of course, with everything, I always take everything with a grain of salt. Um, But it is a good sort of evidence-based, easy to follow um, discussion on our culture's obsession with smaller bodies, essentially, being small in your body and not having uh, fat or having um, what is considered to be a reasonable amount of fat on your body. And the fact that we equate fatness with lack of health or being unhealthy and their major conversation, the, the, the tenet of their, their research is that there actually is not a lot of scientific or medical research data to support the claim that being fat means that you are unhealthy inherently. And so on the other side of this, of course, we're kind of, it's becoming a bit more of a cultural conversation to also identify the fact that being slim or being in a smaller body also does not inherently mean that you are healthy, even though those two things tend to be packaged together. So being fat is packaged with being unhealthy and being thin or smaller is packaged with being healthy. And so basically the authors are saying there's actually not a lot of evidence to support either of these spectrums of health. And 
because of the obsession with being smaller and having smaller bodies and a lack of understanding about um, how much fat someone can have on their body before that's the main driver behind their their ill health um, versus simply actually uh, having a, a third external factor be the reason why someone is fat and unhealthy. Uh, so we have this obsession with with basically controlling the size of our bodies and and not only does this, create stress on the body long term because we will often resort to things like diets and restrictions in our diets and extreme um, workout and and exercise regimes and that sort of thing which is difficult to maintain long term and so obviously if you're not planning to do something for a long time or forever the possibility that you're going to um, quote unquote rebound from that is very high and that is what happens. So um, we again we have this sort of obsession with having a smaller body versus perhaps just um, creating some more healthy habits in our lives and doing things that are actually more healthy for us and will have better a better effect on our overall health than those other extreme things. And so what they found in in writing this book and doing the research that they do is that what I had sort of alluded to being a third factor or a different factor that leads to both being fat and being unhealthy is things like chronic stress and uh, discrimination and uh, what kind of a job you have and how much control you exercise over your position. And so those are more social factors. Those are socioeconomic factors that have this very profound effect on your health. And so not only depending on where you rank socioeconomically um, in terms of like being impoverished or above poverty, but even when you look at, um, according to these authors anyway, when you look at the discrepancy between the CEOs of companies and their underlings, um, there's also a health disparity between those groups. And it's not the typical idea that CEOs are the most highly stressed and living the short uh, lifestyle, short lives and having heart attacks. It is the underlings who tend to live shorter, less healthy lives. So we have to kind of start to reframe how we think about health, how we think about our bodies and food and exercise and movement, because this is something that I have definitely noticed. Someone myself who is uh, quite active in the fitness industry, I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in the industry. I don't necessarily participate in the diet culture side of things, but I do pay attention to what people are talking about in terms of movement and um, good, well-rounded diets and that sort of thing. And something that I have noticed coming up recently is this this um, notion that do like, being active throughout your day, building a little bit of activity into your entire day is going to have a better effect on your overall health, particularly long term, than doing a 30 to 60 minute intense high cardio workout or a strength training workout. Um, if you 
do things like choosing to take the stairs at work instead of the elevator, if you stand while you are folding laundry, if you park further away from your office and walk a little bit or, or get off the bus at an earlier stop and walk a little bit from there, those kinds of things builds more into your day. And so it becomes more of like a sustained activity throughout the day um, is going to have a more profound effect on your health overall. It may not have a profound effect on your body necessarily in the way that you embody your skin, but it will have an effect on your health. And so there is this, this problem of the entanglement between body size and health. And I mean, I'm not to say, I'm not going to say that I don't fall into this trap a little bit myself because of course we're all indoctrinated into the culture that smaller is better that being uh fit and ripped are the ideals and all of that and I do I will say that for myself I do prefer my body when it is on the um more muscular side and a little bit more uh strong looking so I do aim to have my body sort of sitting at that state as much as I can and without going to any big extremes or anything like that um but I also try to be mindful of the fact that that it's important to eat it's important to eat good food it's important to understand your body what you're putting into it, how it reacts to different things and what is best for it and what it functions best with. And sort of look at all that stuff divorced of the external ideas that you have to look a particular way or that that eating X gives you Y. Like there's just, there's so much bullshit (laughs) out there that will try to make you think that you have to have this product or this particular kind of food. Um, Sorry, you'll have to excuse my street is busy suddenly because there was an accident on the street um, by me, and so they're diverting traffic down here, so there's a lot more vehicle traffic coming down. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so this was, again, this was all sort of stemming from the fact that I made these comments about being in shape to do archaeology, and I thought to myself, like, what does that even mean, really, when I look at that kind of comment, and I think, well, what, like, what do I mean by being in shape? Because when I look at the people that I work with, there's a huge diversity and huge variety of different shapes and sizes and weights and all of that for people that I work with, and because, of course, um, I work with men and women, and not everybody, we're not all the same size. And women especially, like, or sorry, there is the, the, the issue of what's called sexual dimorphism, where men or the male of a species tends to be larger than females at adult size. So historically even, archaeology has been a male-dominated industry partly because they just didn't think that women could do it. (laughs) They really didn't think that women were capable of digging um, and digging in the conditions that we dig in. And it took a while for women to sort of assert ourselves and say, like, you don't have to be a big, brute, bulky guy to do this. There's actually a lot of other qualities that, that women bring to the table that some men don't have. Um, And actually, so like an example, this is a bit of an obscure example, but um, an interesting one is that there have been projects where uh, doing cave archaeology and and they literally have to only bring people in who are like under five feet, who are these puny, petite little girls, (laughs) not girls, they're women, but they're very small even for human standards because 
um, they're the right size for that project. So anyway, <laughs> that's an extreme example of w women in particular bringing something to the table. But what I notice is when I'm out in the field, um, there's there's a certain amount of stamina and a certain amount of endurance that is required in order to continue working through an eight hour day because you get, you know, you get breaks every couple of hours, depending on how hot it is, you might get a couple of extra breaks and you drink water and whatever, but you do have to basically sustain doing the digging and the screening and all of that activity for essentially eight hours a day. And if you don't have a good sense of what your stamina is and or a good sense of your endurance and you overdo it, you can easily end up with heat stroke. I've seen people passing out and throwing up and, and doing all of these things because they clearly don't, or they, it's not clearly, but sometimes people don't have a sense of what their body what can, can handle. Sometimes it's just, it's an incident that happens once or twice because of extreme temperatures or something like that. But you do have to have a sense of these things. And so it doesn't necessarily come down to the size of your body or your weight, how tall you are or how wide you are or any of those things. Um, it just comes down to how legitimately fit are you. <laughs> and so this is something where where I've noticed, you know, because like I said, I, I used the, this phrasing in shape. And so then I thought, well, th that might conjure in people's minds, like this idea that archaeologists are out there and they're all these really lean and fit and, and bulky people who, you know, they like our muscles glisten in the sun and stuff like that's not at all what most archaeologists look like. We're just average people who, uh, who are really good at this particular thing and who are active and, can do this because that's what we've been doing. We've been training to do it. Um, and like, you know, everyone who starts out starts out a little bit slow and you build your capacity and your, and your um, ability over time. But yeah, I mean, not a lot of archaeologists really do fit into that category of being really, really like uh, in top shape. Most archaeologists are just, again, like we, <laughs> we're just regular people and so then, yeah, so then I was thinking like, okay, well, I have to explain this a little bit because, um, and then, and that's sort of what spurred this idea that like, I needed to look into this a little bit deeper because I want to understand from a medical and from a scientific perspective, why it is that people will do really well at this job and they don't fit the, the mold or the idea of, of what a really active and fit person would look like. And yet they are really good at this job. Um, yeah, and so I, yeah, I really, I really liked this book. I thought it was very eye-opening. There was a lot of discussion in there that I thought was really helpful and um, really points to the fact that, that social inequality and income inequality have a lot greater effect on your health than most people are willing to admit because honestly that idea really undermines the idea of capitalism. Capitalism in itself is really predicated on the individual and individualism and this is why Americans or North Americans in general really like the idea of capitalism because for us uh, we are very individualistic cultures. We think of merely ourselves, really, maybe our family units. But basically, the idea is that everyone is, is um, everyone has, 
So, okay, so the false idea is that everyone has the same equal access to the resources that are required to become good capitalists, to get a better job, to advance in the world. And that, again, like I said, is a flawed way of thinking because it simply is not true because we actually do uh, intermingle socialism within capitalism, but the socialism is actually preferentially treating certain people. So we know that uh, people who are white and wealthy are going to continue to be white and wealthy to the detriment of others. And so, you know, this is one of the things that I really liked about this book is that it brought up the fact that like discrimination and racism and that sort of thing has a pretty big effect on people's health. And um, so we have to be mindful of this stuff because it's, it's important that we understand the social effect of health and the social determinants of health. Um, versus making everything about the individual. Because similarly, how capitalism is about the individual, you're responsible for yourself. If you don't do well in the world, it's some kind of personal failing on your part. Similarly, we say this and we feel this way about people who are fat. And so not only do we know that there are certain social determinants now that affect people's weight and ability to access good quality foods that um, are not processed and all that stuff. But also the other thing that this book talks about, which is a total, like it's a duh moment for me once they kind of said this, but weight is also highly determined by genetics. Similarly, like your hair, your eyes, your height, those things are also really, are very strongly determined by genetics and so is weight. So when somebody is fat, it's not necessarily because they don't make good decisions, that they don't have good self control or that they don't care. It really often doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just that their body is meant to be a little larger. And so we get into this really vicious cycle of making people feel like they have to be smaller, like they have to have less fat. They go on to the diets and because it's so degrading to be fat, uh, the diets tend to be those quick fixes. And because technically you can lose a lot of weight in a very short amount of time, there's a lot of um, um, temptation there to take that route. There's not, there's, okay, again, I'm paying attention to this industry. So I do see that there are some people who are going, hey, just take the long game. It's going to be fine. You're going to do a slow process and think the weight is going to come off eventually, but it's not going to drop off right away and blah, blah, blah. And so this is becoming more of a thing, but it is a lot harder to sell that to people. And it's uh, so it's not as common to be coming up to people who are finding people who are advocating for that kind of weight loss. And these women... Um, propose an even more radical idea, which is like, don't try to lose weight at all. You don't need to lose any weight. Um, you need to build in better habits. And so one of the things that they talk about, which for me, again, I, I, I don't necessarily super strictly track what I, what I eat every day, but I have a pretty good sense of what goes into my body and like what the calorie breakdown and the macronutrient breakdowns are, are those, uh, <laughs> of those things are. Um, but basically their, their advice, and, uh, this is a two-parter. So their advice is don't necessarily 
look at the labels uh, in terms of calorie content and that sort of thing because a not only uh, does not every everyone absorbs different amounts of calories from food differently so even though something might be marked as a certain number of calories your body may not absorb all of those calories so it's hard to go even by that that standard but also if you just feed yourself food that you feel good eating that makes you feel good when you eat it um, that helps you to feel better without restricting things out of your diet um, with the mindset that you can eat whatever you want whenever you want it. They do find that this has a very positive effect on people's health and, uh, and it can change your weight because the thing that happens is once you lift all of those restrictive ideas out of your mindset and out of your daily practice you are suddenly like, hey, I could eat that delicious sugar thing whenever I want. So like, I don't need to eat it right now. And then you just kind of start to make the choices that are healthier for you because your body will respond positively to it. And then you and so basically their their whole thing is that you you determine what's best for your body and your body will figure out kind of weight wise where you're going to settle and then you're just going to continue to maintain that forever um, and that's going to be what is healthiest for you because if you do go into this this cycle of yo-yo dieting that is actually long term so much worse for your health than to have just maintained where you were in the first place or to have at least gotten off of the the diet track and gotten into being more mindful about what you're eating and again this comes this does connect very deeply to understanding your body your body cues they're talking about things as nuanced as taste when you start eating something and it tastes amazing and your taste buds light up and suddenly over time not suddenly so over time as you eat more of it and your body gets what it needs the taste and the flavor begins to, to diminish and that's your body's cue of saying, okay, I've had enough, we can stop now. But if you don't know those cues exist or you're not paying attention to them, then it's very hard to do this. So so I, I thought that was really profound and I think it's important to keep this in mind. Um, and it was interesting, particularly because when I had my kids and I started thinking about feeding them regular food after or during breastfeeding, I started feeding them both around six months old, which is what's recommended. Um, and I went with baby led weaning because I felt that that was a philosophy that best matched what I wanted for my kids. And in the book that I was reading about baby led weaning called baby led weaning, of course, um, they talked about this very same philosophy of Offer your children a wide variety of healthy, nutritious foods, as little processing as you can manage, um, and they will listen to their bodies and they will get it, get the nutrients that they need on their own. You do not have to control the things that go into your children's bodies because they have mechanisms in their own bodies that they are highly attuned to at that age that will tell them when they're full or when they've had enough or what nutrients they need. And so one of the important things that they look at in this particular, um, in this book, especially the one about baby led weeding, they talked about watching a child's diet over like a seven day period versus a, a meal based or a day to day based um, cycle. Because if you draw it out and you look at it from more of a, of a macro perspective of over a week, 
they will independently uh, on their own, they will fill themselves up and get all of the nutrients that they need, but they might just sit and eat chicken strips for one meal, or they might eat just carrots for one meal. Um, but when you pull it all out and you look at it over a week, they are getting a lot of nutrients and the right combinations of them for them for their bodies. So I just thought it was really interesting that these two books converged on this same idea, um, but didn't reference each other, of course, because they're talking about two very different things. But but ultimately, they're talking about essentially your body knows what it needs. And it, if you pay attention to it, if you let go of all of the expectations of what you're going to eat and what time you're going to eat and all of that stuff, um, you can start to work towards a bit of a more healthy approach to, your, to the food that you eat, to your diet and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, of course, I do want to point out that there is still an element of classism here because the implication that just anyone can have access to a quality diet is classist in itself and it's elitist because that is just not true. Um, so we need to also be mindful that, and I don't think that these authors are necessarily you know, I think that they did a pretty good job of identifying the fact that certain people don't have access to the foods that are best for them and that sort of thing, too. Um, and I also was, I think I was reading an, uh, something or I was listening to something recently that was talking about researchers looking at people who are who are low income, um, who make decisions to eat more fast food things and things that are they're eating out in, in large part because they're they're too stressed to think about cooking and so it's just easier uh to get something that you know everyone will like and everyone will eat in your family if you have kids right you get them mcdonald's or whatever you know they're going to eat it so there's no argument about the food you don't have to think about it you don't have to cook it there's all these different factors in it and then of course layer on top of the fact that um, lots of people are not able to access quality foods and uh, produce and non-processed foods and that sort of thing. So this is absolutely a bigger social issue um, than just vanity and and the idea that we want to be thinner or whatever. It goes much deeper than that too. And I think I'll talk about that sometime as well, but I also think that I've hit my <laughs> my limit for discussion today. So um, yeah, anyway, the point really here is that when I say that it's important to be in shape to do archaeology, I am not referring to any particular size, shape, or weight. Being in shape is individual to you, and you will look however you're going to look, even if you are legitimately in shape, and you don't have to let society dictate that for you. So that is all for today. I want to thank you again for joining me. I am so glad that there are some of you out there who are enjoying this, these conversations, who are getting something out of this. And uh, thank you so much for the, the very kind feedback that, that you have been giving me. I'm really grateful. And um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just keep showing up here every week <laughs> to give you my thoughts. So thanks again. You can find all my contact info in the show notes. And I guess without further ado, I will see you in the next one.